Hey everybody, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development. This is part of our Veteran Stories Difference Makers, and I've got Jay Lyman with us. Hey, Jay. Hey, how you doing, my brother? <laughs> Good to spend time with you. I'd love for you to share with us what was your motivation for joining the military in the first place? Well, it, it goes way back to when I was a kid. That, it was one of my dreams. And my mother was a huge patriot. And, you know, she was one of those very highly, ed she was a doctor as well. And she showed me as a little kid, there's one of our forefathers signed the, you know, Declaration of Independence and, you know, showed me the genealogy and she was like our forefathers came over here in 1631 and we have fought in every single war that's ever been and so that was planted in my head when I was you know like 10 years old and wow so I began my dad was in the military my granddad you know the whole family all my uncles during World War II Vietnam Korea all that and so it was just kind of a growing up thing. I always thought about it. We lived a few miles from the Marine base in Oahu, you know, in Hawaii. And so, you know, going over to family, you know, to their houses, you see pictures of everybody. It was just kind of planted in me. That would be something mm. I would do one day. And so I guess it was about uh, 12 years old. I uh saw my first john wayne movie and you know that he was in the green berets and that was my inspiration we never really watched tv i mean my mother did not allow us to watch tv we we had tutors <laughs> and so anyway i um i got inspired by that and every chance i watched that and Back then, of course, there was no internet. That was, you know, in the early 80s. And I I did not like Hawaii and my family and my whole life so much. I decided I graduated a year early and I signed up for the Army at 17. Wow. <laughs> I shipped out hoping to uh, see the world. And so I did. <laughs> So I signed up. I went through training. I went to airborne training, went to Fort Bragg, special forces, you know, specialized in communications. Went all over the world. Um, our group specialized in Asia and uh, Central and South America and the Caribbean. And so at a young age, I... I my first overseas trip was to La Ceiba, Honduras, which was a hot spot during that time frame, and went to the border on Korea. The you know the we were over there, and so I got to be in a lot of places at a very young age, not really mm -hmm. knowing what the world was going on. But um, so it was it was exciting. It was really uh, yeah. it was a great time. I did uh, my first four-year enlistment, and then my dad needed help with his business, and he was like, please come home. I'll pay you more. And I didn't have any counselors saying, no, you should stay in the Army. So I went in the Garden Reserve, and I went home. I became I, I went to school. I worked full-time construction. Me and a brother started a church. We 
I worked full time as a youth pastor and an assistant pastor and full time construction. And I, I did that for five years, six years. And then I went back in uh, in the early 90s. I went back in. Mm. I changed my MOS. I went into infantry and straight away got sent off to the Bosnian War. And wow. um, so I was in Serbia and Macedonia and Croatia and I mean, the all over the Balkans. And that that was horrifying. That was a lot of bad stuff. But um, so, it, it, you know, it was a lot to take in as a young person. And um, can I just check with you, how old were you when you went back in? Um, when I went back in, I was, let's see, that was 94. I was 27, 28, somewhere in there, 28 years old, maybe. So I, they all call me grandpa because <laughs> uh, until I, you know, first weekend, I'm, you know, 10 years older than everybody else. And I'm, you know, I've got my birds on. And so, and then I got promoted to the, you know, platoon commander. And then everybody just kind of went quiet because I was in charge for the next four months. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely different, uh, you know, going in for a second enlistment as a older, more mature person. It was a totally different experience, you know. How so? Well. It, for one, you know, first the first thing that caught my attention was with their pan they're passing out the LES, the leave earning statements as like our paycheck. And the drill sergeant looked at this thing, he goes, What the what is the you got more time and grade? I'm I'm like, here's my drill sergeant for infantry school. I'm an E4. And he's like, You're making more than I do. How are you doing this? And I'm like, because I came in when you were in elementary school. <laughs> so um, that that was different. When, mm. when you're 17, I was the youngest in the class when I first came in. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, what was that? 10 years later, I was the oldest. Mm. And so that that was an age difference, but I, I had maintained my physical fitness i i smoked them all i was like the most physically fit in the whole company and so there was a lot of differences like that um some of the younger guys they tried to punk me out and stuff and one time the drill sergeant caught this kid getting up in my face and he grabbed him and he said, you have not even earned the right to wear these BDUs. And he's in charge of this platoon. If you say one more word, you're out of this army. I mean, just like that. Wow. I'm like, whoa, that I never experienced that as a 17 year old, you know. Hmm. So there was a lot of things like that, you know, and. Also being, you know, having worked with youth for all those years, now here's all the, this is like my youth group and we're getting trained to go mm -hmm. into combat. And yeah. so my whole, I was not in the survival mode at 17 years old. You're trying to prove yourself as a man and, you know, a little man. And 
now I am, I have been there and done that. And now I'm trying to encourage these guys to grow up in four months and right. quit playing stupid games. Quit, you know, I, <laughs> so many, so many, you know, just grow up fast now, hurry up. We don't have time to mess around, you know? Mm. So it, it was quite different. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> so you're in the, you're fighting and, and serving in the Asian region, as you said, then you come back into civilian life, then you start to serve again, and you're in, in Bosnia and the Balkans, as you're saying, through that whole really horrific time. And so you're in a different region of the world. How long were you serving the second time that you went in? I had a four-year enlistment, and after training, I got sent right over to uh, to Germany. Was our base? I right. we were in the first the first ID, and um, so we went into training. Our first mission was with the United Nations, and mm -hmm. so we went from a war fighting. I mean, we were the vanguard of the brigade. Mm. And so we went from being, you know, combat ready within 24 hours anywhere in Europe to having to now become peacekeepers. And so we went through several months of training to kind to become peacekeepers as opposed to warfighters. Sorry, how long? That that train up was six months. And wow. so we did 29 days in the field. I was a dismounted infantry. So we li I lived in the dirt and the woods. 29 days, we'd have one day to come back, clean our stuff up and go back out. We did that for a total of six months. And then we deployed in uh, Sofia. And so... Uh, our observation posts, we were actually 500 meters into Serbia. And so we had to patrol that whole valley, I mean, that whole area, and not allow the Serbians to come across the border. And so when we were done with that mission, we went back to Germany and the, you know, the battalion commander said, you all are going on two weeks of block leave and we're redeploying for Bosnia. And so we went back out. We got retrained to go back into our war fighting mode. And we were the first Americans to get over there into Bosnia, right? I mean, like right after the, the whole Dayton Peace Accord. And so we were going to secure all these different areas and to go into these communities that had, they had, 20, 30,000 people massacred, civilians massacred. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when you would look out on the neighborhood, on the, the these towns we go through, it was literally like watching one of those old World War II movies where everything was just flattened and, you know, it was just all the men, you know, 90% of all the men and women were gone. The mm. men were all executed. The women were all, they were raped and taken into slavery. And so we go into these little hamlets 
and there'd be eight or 10 kids about seven or eight years old. And that's all there was from the whole little town, just a handful of us. And they didn't know what we were there for. I mean, they were terrified of us. They they were literally telling our interpreters, please don't kill us. You know, so that uh, it was a lot of really rough stuff going. I mean, it was it was a bad scene. It was a really bad scene over mm. there. Did you have to intervene in some situations? Yeah, we had um, our first night that we arrived. This this little town. It, it was like before the war. It was like the number one European destination for vacations. Right. It was called Birchko, Bosnia. And our first night in there, right about uh, 11.30, 12 at night, a huge explosion went off. Well, the opposition was blowing up houses in our our area of operation. And if daisy chain, every 20 minutes, they would blow up a house for like a couple hours. Boom! I mean, all the tents are shaking and... Our sister company that we were relieving, they were out there, you know, trying to secure everything and find that was our first night. The next morning, our scouts go out to relieve the other scouts. And here's a handful of guys running away from this uh, particular location. And they found these mortar tubes. And so they took the they took the measurements on the on the dials and it was aimed right for our camp. Wow. And wow. you know what timing road, roadside mines, uh, you know, IEDs. I mean, yeah, every day was people getting blown up and losing legs, and it was, you know, it was bad. Yeah. And so how long were you in the second time, did you say? Four years? My second, yeah, four years. So I did eight years active duty and then six years guard and reserve. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, Jay, thank you for your service. Really do appreciate you. Thank you for your support. (laughs) And what you've done and and your brothers and your sisters who are with you. Coming back to civilian life and transitioning back to civilian life. I mean, coming out of such a horrific environment, that must have been challenging. Why don't you tell us about your transition back to civilian life? Yeah, that was really... uh, Well, the first week I got home, I, you know, I was hanging out with my dad. We're downtown and... This car drove by. I didn't see the car coming, but right when he got about even with me on the sidewalk, he his car backfired. Wow. And I was on the ground, literally. I mean, I dove on the ground. You ever hear a back a car backfire? It sounds mm. like a you know, shotgun or something. And then I realized where I was at and I jumped up and my dad was looking at me. He said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I just tripped over my feet. I'm okay. <laughs> you know, but I, it started, I, I had a lot yeah. of issues with high impact noises, you know, cutting mm. the grass and that lawnmower backfired. I mean, it was, I couldn't sleep. 
I would get, you know, I was so used to waking up every three hours. Right. That that stuck with me for years. I mean, fortunately, I had a dad who um, he was still working. So I got to kind of pull alongside him and continue working in construction. But I had so many injuries that I couldn't perform like I used to. So I I started looking for other kinds of work. It, It was just really difficult to fit back into society. It was like, I I was, I just thought different. I felt different. People looked at me different. I perceived things differently. Mm. And, you know, it, I, I, I had three spinal injuries. My knees were shot. I, I was having trouble walking, sleeping. I told you about eating. I mean, everything was a mess with me. And then I had been home for several months and my back completely cracked on me. And I was like literally paralyzed. I mean, I, I didn't go anywhere, do anything. I was like bedridden for a month. I couldn't move. I was crawling to the bathroom. Mm. And that's when I realized that I had worse injuries than I, you know, initially thought. And so, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, I mean, my whole life was just like wrecked and I didn't know where to go or what to do. I never heard of the VA, literally. I just, it never came around me. I never got the briefing about, you know, this is, this is back in, um, when I got out the last time it was, um, 98. So it was a while ago. You know, now they're more, from what I hear, they're more, more briefings and, and, and stuff. But I was out for uh, nine or 10 years before I ever got introduced to the VA. And so it it was, uh, it was a long, hard time for me. I, my life just kept getting worse and worse for some reason. I just couldn't deal with, with life. And in 2008, it got to the point where I had lost everything. I mean, literally I had a, I had probably the best job I could have had within a hundred miles making good money. I was driving a Mercedes. I had a nice house. I was, everything was great for me. I lost my job because the economy was crashing. It was just starting to crash in Idaho. It happened a little bit sooner. That's where I was. And long story short, I ended up on the streets with a backpack in Portland, Oregon. And that's when I heard about the VA. And so um, I have been through just about everything you can imagine. And one of the, I think, you know, looking back and even not too distant past, you know, there's some very good people in the VA. The VA itself is not such a great organization. It's a government organization. And one thing they really, they're pushing that, you know, all this counseling and drugs and stuff, it doesn't work. 
that veterans in this country, that is the highest suicide rate of any demographic in our country and probably mm -hmm. all the other countries as well. You know, military and veterans have the highest suicide rate. And so a lot of their therapy is talk therapy, where you're talking about what you went through, you're reliving it, you're bringing it all up, and it doesn't do anything for you except get you all riled up, get you all emotional, going back. You leave the counseling session feeling worse than before you went into it. And so what I've, what I've discovered is that people with CPTSD or complex PTSD, that's where somebody goes through long-term, a long-term traumatic environment that they're living in. You know, it's not just you, you've been there for a few months or a year or two. It's like a lot of people been there for several, several tours, several years in combat. It be, it becomes a complex situation. And it's only been very recently that the medical community has even discovered how to treat CPTSD. And if you even go and Google it, there's several names. CPTSD could turn up as complex or childhood. And I mean, there's several different you know, words that are attached to the acronym, but basically the VA is not treating it properly. And so people are having to seek out their own counseling, their own treatment for this issue. And it does not include dwelling on the past. It's about dealing with your current situation and the results of the past, dealing with those results, what triggers that behavior. Why are you isolating? Why are you depressed? Why is, is using tools to deal with the current events and, and the current symptoms, not talking about all the CRAP in the past. And so it's a total different mind, mind shift. And a lot of the, the older practitioners, they're stuck in their old ways. They're not, they're not even trying to learn what is proven to work astronomically better. So, you know, the drugs are not going to work for you. You read the side effects, suicidal, homicidal tendencies for taking this little pill. You think that's good for somebody who's been trained to, you know. Mm, defend themselves and take life. You don't want to be given anybody that kind of drugs. Yeah. You know, it's just ins insanity. So, Jay, Jay, I just wanted to come back to so 2008. You were having trouble with noise, with sleeping. You had injuries. Um, you found yourself. You, you know, you said you'd lost everything, <laughs> and you discovered the VA, and you started doing some some counselling. So, what were some of the what were some of the outcomes for that situation that you were in then? Well, so as a result of being introduced to the VA, basically I, I was in a, uh, in this veteran program that was sponsored by the, uh, this Christian group, Salvation Army. 
and it was mm-hmm. only for veterans. And one of my buddies was like, you know, if you went up there, you could apply to get some money so you could buy some food and get some clothes and stuff like that. And I was like, all right, whatever. And so I went, I applied. And so it started the process of, you know, looking for some support temporarily to be able to get back on my feet. And so there were some people that helped me a lot. And there were some people in that system that messed me up even worse than I was already messed up. And it was just, you never knew who you were going to be working with that day, you know? And so whether it was an intake coordinator who was supposed to be doing paperwork, the first guy I had ever met in the VA with a stack full of papers started asking me questions and completely filling out the paperwork the worst possible way you could ever imagine to fill it out. And so after waiting for about six months, I was like, uh, what's going on with my paperwork? And uh, the counselor at the, the VA said, okay, we have 80,000 applications and we have 42 people to process those applications. If you want to get some help, go to a state that doesn't hardly have any veterans and you'll get it much quicker. So I went back to Idaho because there's only a million people in the whole state. You know, Portland had about a million people in the city. So um, long story short, I eventually got a disability pension and you know, started trying to put my life back together. But looking back now, I would not suggest that pathway to anybody. And um, I would first go to family and friends and church and try and get help in the local community as opposed to going to the government and asking for help. I do not advise anybody to go to any government. It's like, we need to learn to take care of our families and our community and our our church members as they are our family and our neighbors and stop looking to the government for everything, you know, because mm. they do some things good, but honestly, most governments do most of what they do bad or very inefficient or just uncaring. It's like, we got to take care of people. Yeah, we do. So Joe, I just want to pull out some, some points because someone listening to this could say, yep, you, you know, you were a soldier and then you came out and then you had, you had a business and, and then the business went bust and you arrived at being homeless. But you know, that wasn't because of the war, but the situation is, you had ongoing psychological and emotional issues. You had physical injuries that the extent of them you didn't even know. And you had no exposure and training and awareness of what sort of support was available to you so that when you finished your service, you could have gained the help or at least started the journey to getting some help to mitigate some of those things you were carrying from two tours of service in really horrific circumstances. 
And so that's the difference maker really is that you're a veteran who has all of those all of those baggages. And it's a not, it's not a happy word, but you are carrying those things. And so you and I had the opportunity to discuss a few weeks ago about what really from your perspective should be in place to help veterans. And it's a, maybe a utopian view, but I'd love for you to share what you think needs to happen when someone exits the army. Because sometimes people have, or the Marines or the Navy or Air Force or whatever, I just mean the military. Some people have family who can pick them up at the airport and they get back into life and they get yeah. some support. But, you know, they can make that transition fine, but mm -hmm. a lot of people can't, which is why the suicide rates and homelessness and everything else is so, yeah. so tragic. Mm -hmm. Tell us. So... Really, it is a community-based environment. And so when people, you know, and, and I know things have changed over the last 22 years. They're a little bit better from what I'm hearing from, you know, some of the younger guys. But when you come out of that kind of environment, it, you need a place where you can just cool down for a while, not for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. You need an environment where you can be fully engaged, just like when you're in the military. You get up at the crack of dawn, you're doing PT, you get your uniform on, you eat breakfast, you got formation, you go to class, you do whatever, you know, you, you have a full life. And so you get discharged from the military and you go into this community-based environment where you have a very similar schedule. Same thing, wake up early, PT, eat breakfast, go to class, okay? And in this environment, you're gonna be learning skills that will help you to live effectively in civilian life. From A to Z, you know, how to balance a checkbook, you know, financial, mental, physical, social, spiritual, every aspect of your life is, is being addressed. You don't have to worry about immediately going out and getting a job. You will learn how to go to a civilian school because civilian schools are diametrically opposed to military school. And that's why... 75% of military veterans who go to college fail out almost immediately, okay? At least 75%. And so you'll be able to take the education that you need, but in the kind of environment that works for you. In other words, in that military style that you are used to and you've been in for the last several years. So that... The, the change coming out and being reintegrated into society is just not bam overnight. Yeah. You are in a program where it'll last several months. And when you feel right. ready, so you start out with a hundred percent of your time is in this community and say on the weekends, you go out and you'll have a project, you go visit your family, whatever, and you go back to the community. And then from a couple days a week, it'll be three days a week. Then you get a part-time job, or if, you have, if you're starting your own business, you start doing things in the community, volunteering. 
So there's a whole agenda to get you slowly reintegrated to where from 100% of the time here, transition to 100% of the time back into civilian life. And so that model, um, I've seen it work in many other, you know, social dynamics and nobody has developed a program like that yet. There are some post-military programs available where you can go live on a farm, learn how to farm and do stuff like that, but it doesn't address every area of your life. You know, you can go learn how to do different trades, go to trade school, but there's no place available where you can decompress, get mm. re-educated and reintegrated at your pace. Mm. It takes a year, it takes a year. You know, if it takes a month, it takes a month, whatever it is. But it's at least a definite minimal time and to where you don't go anywhere by yourself. You have a battle buddy, you got a buddy. You don't go to the bathroom by yourself, just like when you're in service, or at least as an infantryman, you don't go anywhere without your battle buddy. And mm. so the same thing goes in the community. Everywhere you go, 100% of the time, you're with somebody to talk to and talk with and walk with and eat with and whatever, you know? So there's mm. nothing else out there like that. Yeah. I'm just thinking of people who, in New Zealand, obviously you can tell by my accent where I'm living right now. Mm-hmm. So in New Zealand we have um, what's called wraparound services and it's run by a government department, but it's it's contracted out to community agencies mm-hmm. who are used to working grassroots with people and these wraparound services are for women that have come from a domestic violence situation and it's not just dealing with the violence and putting them in another place it's everything that comes with that as you say ptsd at different levels there are people who leave prison and they've been in there for 10 12 years coming back to society now it's a whole world different than what they were living in and mm-hmm. people coming from military i think these models out there where different pieces of that could be taken. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure in America there are grassroots organizations yeah. who are doing pieces of the puzzle that could bring it together. Mm-hmm. The cost of someone yeah. being in society but out of society mm-hmm. because of what they've been through and not dealing with and not getting the support to to deal with the past so they can live fully in the, in the present to mm-hmm. build a better future the cost of all of that must be so much less than providing this type of support that you're talking about. So I hope that someone who's watching the recording and listening to the picture that you're painting of what could happen could support this and maybe have a pilot program, could have a test run with a smaller group of people and understand we need this component, we're missing that one, this one's redundant, we only need this at this time, and just test it for a couple of years because the I think the profit, just in financial terms, the profit of that person's life and the yeah. contribution they can make to their family and community coming back more well-adjusted. Right, has right. got to be more. It's got to be worth it, that person's life. 
Yeah. It's going to be with well, it. Like you're saying, people are doing similar things to like what I'm sharing. They're doing this in other demographics. Mm. It just hasn't been fully integrated for military service members mm. that are, you know, getting out. And it's like you're saying earlier, some people get out and they get into civilian life and they're fine. Mm. But what we're looking at statistically, you know, even combat veterans, you know, there's about 11 to 14 percent, depending on who you're listening to, you know, of combat veterans have severe PTSD issues. OK, and then you're looking at maybe 25 to 30 percent have PTSD issues and then probably at least 50 percent have some emotional issues. So there's, you know, there's different, there's, you know, different varying degrees of intensity of trauma that people have experienced and are still dealing with. So it's not everybody's on the same, you know, level of neediness per se. And it doesn't really even have to do with what they did. Cause you have some Navy SEALs getting out and they appear to be absolutely fine. And then you have regular old grunts that are just completely messed up and vice versa. You know, cause I've seen the Navy SEALs that admit I'm totally messed up. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And these are the most highly trained military in the world. And so just because you have the most training doesn't mean you're going to get out and be perfectly fine. You know, mm. there's no way you can predict who on that scale. I mean, there's people that have never even been in actual combat that have severe PTSD because they were in, you know, in theater and saw stuff yeah. and heard stuff and mm. were exposed to other people that got blown up or what have mm. you, you know? So it, you don't need to be shooting and killing people to get severe PTSD. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. And so it's, yeah, we cannot be judging anybody. You got an issue. Come here. Let's help you come into the family, you know, yeah. come back into the family. Yeah. Jay, I'm just thinking that um, it is, you're absolutely right that it, regardless of their position or their MOS or anything that they've been through, this doesn't even count their motivation for coming into the military and what their life was like beforehand, yeah. and what they what baggage they brought into exactly. the service, because that's a whole other world of having to deal with the past. And so there's, there's that extra, extra conundrum which maybe yeah. no one even knows about that they've been through before they started yeah. experience some of these things in active service or not. Totally. Jay, yeah. I really want to, I just give you wrap up, but yeah. give you an opportunity okay. to finish up just as we wrap up. What's, what's one final thought that you might like to give for someone who's watching the recording? Well, just a trailer on what you were just saying there. Um, there is this condition called childhood PTSD. And so that is a result of going through abuse, neglect, mm. um, you know, all different things that kids in our day and age go through. Now, a huge percentage of people that go through childhood PTSD have a proclivity to join the military, where then that CPTSD from childhood now 
progresses into complex PTSD. And so, you know, there's this progression, like you said, a lot of these, like in my case, I was severely abused, neglected and blah, blah, blah. And wanted to get away from that and went into the military. I got more traumatized in my, you know, service to the country. And so it, it really, and civilians, total civilians have severe PTSD. So even just being a civilian person, you can have equally bad or worse than a military PTSD person, you know, mm. person with PTSD. So the bottom line really is, these are just human beings. And yeah. because I'm a veteran, I kind of focus on the veteran side of things, mm. but these are human beings that need to be healed. Yes. And, you know, like before we started this, you said a prayer for us. And it's like, that is the, to me, that is the most important thing that we find our source of life and health and healing. It doesn't come from man. It comes from above. And I think that for me has been the most important thing that I've learned in my life is that without the help of my father and his, I have my scriptures right over here and other people that can speak a good word into my life. That is my hope for my healing that he's putting people in my life to perfect me on this journey. Thanks. Thank you, Jay. Yeah. Again, thank you for your service. Thank you for sharing your story and being really vulnerable for us. And thanks for sharing your, what could be an antidote to this huge epidemic of, of yeah. suicide of veterans and how valuable their lives are. So thank you very much. And for those of you watching the recording, if you'd like to reach out to Jay, um, you can do that. And with the show notes, we'll make sure that we have some contact details as well. Or you can reach out to me at the University of Applied Research and Development, Craig at UARD.university, and I'll get you in touch with Jay if you'd like to fund or help organize or help connect this project, which Jay is talking about, which would be hugely valuable. So thank you for joining us on Veteran Stories. We look forward to having you with us on our next episode as we interview another Difference Maker. Mm -hmm.